I am Douglas Little, founder, perfumer, and creative director for Heretic Perfume. You are listening to the I Am Heretic podcast. These podcasts are an exploration of the senses with a focus on fragrance, how it's made, the effects it has, and the incredible people it has led me to meet. I am very excited that we are being joined today by someone who actually knows what the fuck they're talking about. <laughs> Is that person coming later? <laughs> I'm not that person, right. yeah. We are being joined today by Ash Ranpura. Ranpura, is that correct? Ranpura. Ranpura, who is a doctor of neuroscience. Is that correct? Yeah, I'm actually a, a doctor of neurology and neuroscience. So That's amazing. The distinction is subtle. But as a neurologist, I see patients with neurological disorders, so strokes, seizures, multiple sclerosis, brain diseases, and central nervous system diseases. And then as a neuroscientist, I do research into the brain and behavior. So how does biology produce behavior? Well, I'm very excited that you're joining us today um, to have a deep dive conversation into how the brain processes fragrance and to shed some light on that. And then also, we are being joined by the very beautiful Sara Schuland. Beautiful. It's as if you were Swedish. Oh, yeah. yeah. That's right. Yeah. Exactly. That's, that, thank you for that. That was very kind. Beautiful pronunciation. Uh, will you give us a bit of your background? Well, um, my sort of full-time job is being Ash's friend, I guess. <laughs> it's a very large part of what I do. Other than that, I'm a, a producer and an editor, and that can be anything from editing books or podcasts and some TV stuff. So we are currently in London, in Hoxton to be exact, mm-hmm. and um, we, I'm here doing a uh, event, custom blending event, and Sara and I have become friends, and she is absolutely brilliant and just sparkly and <laughs> so incredibly intelligent. No. And we've had some really deep dive conversations on fragrance and how it makes us feel, and she said, you absolutely have to meet Ash. And uh, Ash came into the room about... 10 minutes ago, and we have been explosively discussing ideas on fragrance and how the brain processes it and sexuality and all of the really good meaty topics. So you actually said something that was really interesting a few minutes ago was that you felt that the concept of fragrance and the way that the brain processes it is nothing more than heretical. Is that correct? Yeah, I think so. And I think the, the reason for that is if you think of the, the kind of the classic five senses, which really, I mean, the brain, there are many more than five senses that the brain actually processes. But, you know, we learn, I don't even remember them, sight, <laughs> smell, touch. You don't know them? Hearing. But, you know, I mean, there are a lot of other senses, like the sense of your body in space, the sense of spatial awareness. There are many senses that we don't kind of call. But even amongst the kind of classical five senses that you learn as a kid, smell is really different to the other four and I used, I love that word heretical, you know, because I think something that's heretical, you know, it challenges the conventional wisdom. It challenges received wisdom. So we have this wisdom about how the brain sees the world, how it hears the world, how touch gives us a sense of the world. And smell violates every theory we have about the other senses. Why is that? There are a couple things that are really, really unique about smell. First of all, it is the, the oldest in terms of evolutionary, the evolutionary timescale, smell is the oldest sense we have. And why, from an evolutionary perspective, why smell? At some level, the most basic thing that, you know, we did when we 
climbed out of the primordial sludge was what you could call chemosensation. We detect chemicals in the natural environment, and we figure out whether we want more of those chemicals or fewer of them, whether they're toxic or helpful. So we, we, we're chemo detectors. That's the earliest sensory organ that probably anything has on an evolutionary basis. And light detection is way later in evolution than chemo detection. So our earliest sensory system should be a chemo detection system, and, and the sense of either smell or taste probably comes closest <laughs> to that. So those are very old, and for some reason... And when I say old, okay, there are some parts of the cortex that are weird. I'm going to keep using this word weird when we talk <laughs> about smell because it's so weird. There are some parts of the cortex that are kind of evolutionarily ancient. So parts like the hippocampus, entorhinal cortex, piriform cortex, and, and olfactory cortex. These deep medial, the, the parts right in the middle of the brain, they're, they're, they're very weird. They're, sometimes people use this word reptilian. Mm -hmm. I don't like that word because it doesn't really look like a reptile brain, but it's, it's a very, very ancient part of the brain. It's a little bit like if you lived in a really modern house and there's some like weird dungeon <laughs> where all the actual stuff happens. It makes a lot of sense. Right. It's the weird dungeon. So, so it's an old sense. That's one thing that's weird about it. The other thing that's very weird about it, it is the, is, is the sense of smell is the sense that most directly connects the brain with the real world. None of the other senses are very well connected That's to the room. Yeah. So, like, if you think about what happens when you see something, you know this concept of the synapse. So, basically, the cells in the brain that do all the heavy lifting are called neurons. They speak to each other using these structures called synapses. So, one cell talks to its neighbor using a synapse, and it's, it's, that's the way that signals propagate across the brain. So one way of measuring how closely connected the brain is to reality is the number of synapses. So if you think of like vision, in order to get even light detection, I'm not saying like the ability to see Sarah here, okay, but just light and dark. Just light and dark requires about six or seven synapses to get into the brain. There is nothing in smell that requires more than two. There's the first synapses right above the nose in the olfactory bulb, and the second synapse is piriform cortex, you're already into cortex. That's amazing. Mm -hmm. So it's really, really direct. If you think of the, the, the amount of time it takes for a smell signal to get into the brain, it's super fast. Mm -hmm. Now that, again, is weird. Like, we don't smell quickly. It takes time for us to understand that we've smelled something. And do you think that that's due to the fact that the way that, you know, I, I mean, I've been studying fragrance now most of my life, and that the language that I have for fragrance has become quite vast because I've been working yeah, at it oh, very wow. closely. And so, but when, like this morning, I was doing this class and I was with people who really experienced, you know, they've obviously experienced fragrance, but I asked them in a room to quickly describe a fragrance and many people just became blank. And yeah. it's fascinating because the, this is an interesting aspect of how, you know, what you were saying, that fragrance, it, it's an immediate, do you know what I mean? It's very immediate. You said there's two two moments basically before the brain is triggering this. Yeah. Do you think that that's part of it? Part of the reason why it's hard to describe mm -hmm. smell? It's a little bit like if we go back to the analogy of the house, if smell is in the dungeon, I mean, you're asking for parts of the brain that are in the attic to comment on things that are happening in the dungeon. The, the parts of the brain that do language, and particularly the kind of language you're describing, like conceptual language. So what does the smell remind you of? What is it? How would you describe it to someone else? There's so many things that happen in that interaction that are very high-level processes. So I think one of the difficult things is you're linking a really low-level process with a really high-level process. But I also think, <clears throat> excuse me, that when we met for the first time, Douglas was basically given to me as a present. From, <laughs> from, that sounds kinky. <laughs> was, hey, Douglas. No, it was kinky. No, um, my friend or our friend Charlotte sort of surprised me 
uh, with this incredibly beautiful gift of having the opportunity to make my own fragrance with, oh. with Douglas. And and I remember you had all of your little mysterious looking bottles in front of us on, on the table. And I found exactly that. I didn't have a, a vocabulary to talk about right. fragrance. And I think what's so weird about it is that when you smell all of these, you know, the contents of all of those bottles, you have such a strong reaction and there's often this very familiar sense of like, I know this, but where? And 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 I, and and it's to not be able to sort of pronounce that is is the strangest feeling. So there was yeah. a there was a really interesting paper uh, a couple of years back called Olfactory Induced Nostalgia. And for some reason the sense of smell has the ability to transport people in time more than any other sense. So you can see like a photograph of yourself as a child and you maybe can remember the feeling of being in your childhood home or, you know, you, you can touch something that reminds you of a toy that you had when you were a baby. But that sense of smell is so powerfully transportive for people. So there's this whole phenomenon. Why is it particularly smell can evoke nostalgia? It turns out that on the East Coast of America, particularly the smell of baked bread mm-hmm. absolutely evokes nostalgia in a lot of a lot of people who grew up there. Oh, that's fascinating. I don't know. Yeah. It's, that wouldn't be the smell that evokes my childhood. In California, no one eats carbs. So no, no it wouldn't right. be bread. Yeah. That's right. It certainly would not be yeah, bread. It's kale juice. <laughs> yeah, that's very true. But can I say one other thing about like what's weird about smell? And that is that the fundamental problem, I think, in terms of explaining how the brain smells is that you've only got about something like 400 genes that code for an olfactory receptor. So this is a, it's a kind of a protein that recognizes smell molecules, odorant molecules. So these proteins will bind to the odorant molecule, then they, that tells the neuron they're attached to that, look, I'm smelling licorice, I'm smelling spearmint, I'm smelling whatever. The best analogy is, okay, if you think about your eyes. So most of us have cells in the eyes that can detect red light, blue light, and green light. And we combine red light and blue light and green light to see, let's say, tens of thousands of colors, something in the range of tens of thousands of colors. So with olfaction, you've got, you've got 400 of these different receptors, and there doesn't seem to be a limit to how many smells humans can distinguish. It's definitely on the order of trillions. I mean, trillions. That's amazing. Okay, yeah. so... <laughs> this is a lot of perfumes to, for you to make. Oh yeah. So, yeah. so this, is, this is the crazy thing. Like somehow, these 400 receptors are creating trillions of smells. So then... This big question is, how does that happen in the brain, that you get trillions of smells? And that's a fundamental question that I don't think anybody can really answer. Now, there's a dominant theory. So the dominant theory is that you, you combine information from these 400 cell types, and you have about 10,000 cells that have these 400 receptor types on them. You have what's called an olfactory map. So for every scent, you can imagine, like, a, example, we're sitting at a table, you imagine spots of color all over this table, red, greens, and blues, right? And the particular pattern of red, greens, and blues, one pattern will mean spearmint, one pattern will mean cayenne pepper, one pattern will mean vinegar, that's called combinatorial coding. So we think that's the pattern of cells. That is really just a guess. I mean, even at that level, I would say we don't know. There's no other sense that does that. So when you see, like if you see things, you can detect a photon of light. I mean, it's not a combination. Like you actually see light quite directly. If you hear a sound, you hear pure tones. You don't hear the tones because you're combining tones. I mean, if you hear the sound of a harp or a violin, yes, you combine the tones to create texture but you can perceive pure tones. 
you don't seem to be able to perceive olfaction in the same way. So the biology of it already is just really mysterious and really, really different. So fascinating. I mean, it's it's one of those things that when I'm with clients and we're working with fragrance to see how they light up and to see that many of the sessions that there's very high emotions mm-hmm. that become involved with it, it really triggered me to want to go down this path and to have someone, you know, that was truly a doctor of neuroscience be able to talk about this in in more depth because I think that it's so mysterious and you do hear the term reptilian brain mm. a lot described about with fragrance in the pituitary area of the of the the brain and this this area that is really mysterious in a lot of ways. We don't know what what's going on with it. Uh, there's this in- incredible author named Diane Ackerman. She writes some really beautiful work, and she describes fragrance for most people as being like Helen Keller, and yeah, that they're yeah. blind in, this, in, a, in mm. a room trying to find, you know, like stumbling over a chair, and these, you know, the chair being, a, you know, an analogy for and these adjectives to describe fragrance. And I think that for a lot of people, it feels very accurate in trying to, you know, f- connect to it. I'd love to ask you about your thoughts on synesthesia. Mm. And can you explain what it is and how fragrance might play a part in synesthesia? So synesthesia, I mean, people mean different things by it. But what I mean is just it's uh, connections between two senses. And the most typical form of synesthesia is called number color synesthesia, or sometimes letter color synesthesia, where people see numbers with particular colors. Now, quite a few of us might have loose associations. Like, to me, seven, like, sometimes I guess seven is kind of yellow. But for s- true synesthetes, those are really reliable connections. Like, seven is always whatever color it is for them, even in the context of a multi-digit number. The most common model of it is that you have these number-color associations sort of by accident, and they be- can become a reliable way that you tell numbers apart. So for some people, that just becomes a really reliable way to discriminate between numbers, and from other, for others, it's not as strong of an association. So it's not really that you're misfiring. It's that everything we perceive, every experience we have, all of our experiences are quite linked together. So, for example, like, this, like we said about baked bread, I mean, you might have studied your multiplication tables while someone in the house was baking bread, and then there will be that loose association. And then if you do that over and over, the association becomes stronger. So that's, that's kind incredible. of one model of synesthesia. I mean, there are other models of why it works. But I don't think that it's like a misfiring. It's those things, you know, they occurred together at some stage. I was told by a pretty good source about a private equity company, who, which I won't mention the name of, who had someone on their team who had synesthesia. And they were going to pay, I mean, tens of millions of, of pounds for this company. And they were like, what color is like 23 million? You know, and he's like, orange. Like, is that a good color or not? <laughs> so they really... They really yeah. <laughs> I mean, yeah, so they used a synesthesia to, to get a number that kind of felt good. That's yeah. amazing. I think that with the concept of synesthesia, and I've always, the way that I've had it presented to me was one that was very much about the brain misfiring. Mm. And so I love hearing this because it makes, I think it makes a lot more sense out of it. And it makes it less, I don't want to say less special, but it makes it more relatable because yeah. I think when you read about synesthesia, you hear about these famous synesthetes that really, you know, are, are so 
perceived as being an anomaly, and this makes it much more relatable. And I wanted to bring the concept of the synesthesia and about the way that the brain processes fragrance, because for me, when I smell certain things, I have very specific colors that are associated Mm. with Mm. fragrance. And for me, it's very natural. It's always been that way for me, which I'm assuming is some version of synesthesia. But do you believe that this concept of when you smell something and it triggering another aspect of the brain to fire is a way that someone could work with fragrance to trigger, for instance, like if you wanted to increase libido or you wanted to find a way of calming yourself down, that the same concept could be associated with something. Lavender, for instance, is a great example. Lavender naturally has a tremendously high content of linalool. And linalool, it's one of the effects that it has as a calming effect on the body. But do you think that also because of the fact that for so long, lavender has been put into skincare and things like that for calming effects, that that's part of the reason? I do think that. So, so, so you're, get, you're getting to this to, to a, again, a really fundamental question that I think neuroscientists don't have a great answer to, which is, is our sense of smell, do, are we born with it or do we learn it? Mm-hmm. Like, do we learn that lavender is a calming smell or are we born with some knowledge that lavender is calming? Lavender is a trickier example because we don't necessarily encounter that as babies. Usually for most of us, particularly those of us who were born in the West, lavender is introduced to us in the setting of something calming and soothing. We don't, you know, we're not born in a field of lavender. But if you think of something like, okay, putrid smells, like the smell of rot, the smell of feces, children aren't naturally actually averse to those smells. Mm -hmm. So we sort of think like these smells should indicate death and disease. So ideally you would think that if a child is born with a sense of smell, we would be born to avoid the smell of rot. But Sometimes babies are quite fascinated by the mm-hmm. smell. of They don't avoid it. They learn to avoid it quite rapidly because, of the, because adults make mm. faces of disgust when they smell it. But otherwise, they don't. So what's really reliable in babies is babies tend to avoid new smells. If they're unfamiliar with it, they will by default not really like it. But if they've smelled something several times, unless an adult has told them this is a good smell or this is a bad smell, often they're just kind of interested in lots of smells. They're, they're sort of, you know... So there's a novelty seeking and there's also a a kind of a discomfort with the unfamiliar, which has a lot to do with the baby's personality later. Is a baby who seeks novelty and therefore feels calm? Mm. Or is this a baby who's nervous about novelty and therefore feels somewhat insecure? But there are so many basic things that a human baby is born without, right, if you compare yeah. it to other species, right? But that this it's fascinating because smell is so fundamental, as we were just talking mm. about, that you don't have that. That's fascinating. Well, I mean, you think, like, why yeah. do we have a sense of smell? Presumably, I mean, I guess, like, armchair evolutionary biologists would say to steer us towards healthy things, like foods we like or situations we like, and so we avoid danger, particularly we avoid poisons. But it doesn't seem to work that way. And yet it's like this really big visceral reaction. It's, it doesn't reliably guide us away from poisons and towards foods. We learn that too. I wanted to ask you about your thoughts regarding mother's connection to baby and baby's connection to mother. In my reading and learning about fragrance, it's something that has come up regarding the baby's olfactive aspect to mother and that that is such a primal aspect. And I wanted to see if you could shed any light on this. And people often talk about the smell of a newborn baby's head and um that's yeast the yeast exactly yeah. so can you talk yeah, a little is. bit about babies this? smell yeah. like bread <laughs> they do no that is the thing babies smell like bread and and they carbohydrates and, yeah yeah and they and and that's because of a yeast that grows on their head it's actually the same yeast that produces like cradle cap 
seborrheic dermatitis. What, what's that? Cradle cap is like baby. A lot of times, newborn babies will have like a little, like they'll have some skin, like almost it looks like dandruff. Ew! I know it's kind of gross, but that is the yeast that produces seborrheic dermatitis. <laughs> and then when they start producing natural hair oils, it starts to kill off that yeast, and then they they don't have that. Could but most ma- babies are born with. Because everyone talks about the smell of a new baby. Can like can you can you harvest those yeasts from <laughs> the baby's know. heads and make a fragrance, Douglas? <laughs> oh, that's very or just, it just whole be. babies, just like. There's so many baby. babies. There are a yeah, lot of babies. there are a lot yeah. of babies. No. I think that that... We are joking, <laughs> listener. <laughs> but, you know, it does bring up this question, which I think sometimes people ask about smell. Um, there's this idea of pheromones. Mm-hmm. So pheromones are, in some way, they're like olfactory molecules. Or anyway, they're molecules that are used a lot in non-human animals. So rats and so on. Um and they, they, they play a big social role in those animals for, for pair bonding and, and, and mother-child bonding and things like that. Humans don't really have a lot of these. Do you remember that, those studies where they said that women sync their menstrual cycles? Yes. Yes. So that is apparently done through pheromones. Oh. It's the only human behavior that I know of which is reliably done through a pheromone. Now, part of the reason for this is even, even in mice, the organ that detects pheromones is not the olfactory system. It's another system. So what's up with the whole thing of putting the baby on the mother's chest and then in Sweden, since we're so, you know, egalitarian, on the father's chest? Oh, yeah. And you unbutton the shirt. And and I think a lot of people think that it's because you get used to the the scent of the mother and the father. But is that... So it's a type of bonding. Yeah, it's like as a bonding thing. There's quite a lot of evidence for the sense of touch between mothers and babies and fathers and babies. Maybe heartbeat, like mm. being able to feel the heartbeat. These things are like most animals do that. They're mm-hmm. very, very close to the newborn through touch. I'm not sure that that's specific to smell. Scratch that. I don't know. I don't <laughs> know. Not a lot of evidence that it is, I'd say. You know, but this is one of the things that I think is interesting about your work, Douglas, because we don't practice the sense of smell. You know, it really, really takes second fiddle to our other senses. I feel like we practice vision a lot, particularly we learn to read, so very, very high definition, rapid vision. We learn at an early age. M- many of us will learn to, okay, we, we certainly practice sound because we detect differences in people's voices. So language is really rapid processing of closely related sounds, but also music and singing. I think we practice touch and that that's kind of how we navigate the world. We pick things up, we understand their weight, we understand the position of our limbs. So one of the other striking things about smell is that it really degrades starting at age 20. People get worse at smelling. That's so true. Over time. Mm -hmm. And my theory about that has always been that would happen with anything if we functionally blinded ourselves. Like if you if you don't hear, you plug your ears, your sense of hearing will get worse. But I'm curious, just to go back where you were a second ago, Ash, about not learning mm. about smell. I mean, you, Douglas, have obviously, you know, you're highly trained in identifying smells. I would just be so interested in hearing how did you go about educating yourself and just learning? Well, I think one of the most valuable lessons I've learned as a human and as a perfumer is curiosity. Mm. And that is the most 
important thing. You know, I have been sticking my nose where it shouldn't be for years. Um, and that's, I think, one of the things that has been the most influential is mm. that I've been extremely curious about the foul and the fragrant. And I think that that's where you start to learn. You know, I think what you were saying about a child's curiosity about feces, for instance, you know, it's quite normal until mm-hmm. they're told that it's not. Mm-hmm. And as a perfumer, it's really important to understand the nuances and that you can't have the light without the dark. Mm. And I think that that is paramount even within the human soul, that you have to have a shadow aspect for the light part of yourself to come forwards. And fragrance works the same way. It's like tuberose. Tuberose on its own is so uh, heady and it Mm. can be so overwhelming and cloying for a lot of people. Mm. But if you put the smallest amount of something to cut through that, that for some people might find it very shocking, you know, for instance, like patchouli is not a huge favorite for people or seps, which is a porcini mushroom Mm. that's used in fragrance. Those types of very acrid, dense, hard to take Mm. smells in small amounts cut through that beautiful, almost too much beauty. And you create something that is truly magical. So I think that that, you know, kind of stems. So you've hit on another thing, which I think is super weird about the sense of smell. When you create a perfume, but my guess is that people's experience of that perfume is sort of like an experience. It's an experience with facets, but it's kind of an experience. Whereas if you hear like the sound of a trumpet, you can often identify the individual notes. Like you can break apart the components. So smell combines mm. in this way where when you put a hint of seps into a perfume, most people, certainly like people like, uh, like us who are not trained perfumers, we would probably have a hard time knowing that that was there. We would notice that the, the quality of the perfume changed, like something about the experience really was different. That, I mean, that was so much my experience when you made my perfume. There were so many surprises and things that on its own, I almost recoiled smelling. Mm-hmm. But yeah, then when it's so. put into this kind of bouquet sort of or a symphony with other fragrances it just transform it's 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 like you're a magician well i don't know i mean I, thank you that's very kind of you i i think that this is where winemaking and fragrance is yeah. so similar because um you know when you're tasting a great red wine mm. uh, i particularly love bordeaux and i love these kind of dry reds and for me what i always love is i want some barnyard in my glass me too yes cheers it cheers to that exactly <laughs> you know that again I think is something that like when you go to a wine tasting, you know, they'll talk about that. And I certainly didn't know that. Like I couldn't describe that until I was told by a, a vintner that, that this is what you're getting and this is these aspects that are coming forwards and the minerality and all of these, you know, different concepts. Same thing with fragrance. Oh, yeah. So it's very surprising because I think what you're describing, that certain smells become, you know, overpowering or becomes too much, that actually makes us, I think should make us doubt this combinatorial model that the brain, you know, these 400 olfactory receptors, they recognize trillions of scents through combinations, right? The, the pattern on the map. Because if you recognize a molecule, you should recognize the molecule. It shouldn't really matter that there's more of it. How much of it? Yeah. Well, you know, look, look if you see red, you see red. I mean, mm-hmm. you might not like it to see lots of red, but it's not going to change the color of the red that you see a wall versus... But sound uh, can be loud or, or... Sound can be loud, but the, but, yeah. but the note doesn't change. You don't think mm. it's a different note. You just think, I don't like it. But with smell, in addition to liking it or disliking it, the actual nature of the smell changes if you've got lots. Or, and one is this classic example of the indole. 
So indoles are a molecule that at low doses, they smell... You are talking my language, I am, sir. I know. So the indole. Douglas was like, you know, punching the <laughs> air when, when Ash said indole. And I, yeah. I'm just like, fill me in, guys. I Like indoles. Why are you so excited about it? All I'm going to say is I'm very anxious to hear what you have to say about indole because it's one of my very favorite Oh, it's a weird molecules. scent. Yes. Uh. Um, so indole is highly present in several different flowers, but particularly in jasmine mm. and in orange blossom, you'll find high concentrations of indole, but please. So what's crazy is that at relatively low concentration, indole smell floral and really nice. And then at relatively high concentrations, they smell putrid. It's not even that people don't like, it's like too much jasmine. It's not that. It's that at high concentration, it actually smells like rot. That's correct. So this means that the nature of the smell, it would be like if you see a swatch of red, it looks red, but you see a wall of red and it looks blue. I mean, that, it's that different. It's that different. And so this is, you can't explain this with this combinatorial processing that's kind of what neuroscientists think the brain is doing. Something is super weird about this. And that is, as a perfumer, it's really important that you learn your language and you also learn the reactions that specific smells people associate with them. Mm. So for instance, indole is a really interesting one because indole is also present in human feces. Is it? And so, but it's in high concentrations. And so this is the, one of the, one of the aspects. It's so interesting. (laughs) Yeah. It's crazy. And so it's one of the ways that as a perfumer, you can push and pull the indole to be able to adjust the level of sensuality or sexuality that you want to come across in the fragrance. So I have several fragrances that have very high concentrations of indole and that are very erotic in their, the way that they present themselves on the skin. But again, it's like, you know, you have to pick and choose who you want to talk about poop with. So. Yeah, well, that's right. That's right. Now, I feel we should talk about poop more often. Yeah. I agree. I agree. So one of the other things is that's, again, weird about smell is that certain smell molecules like pyrazines. So we're sensitive to pyrazines. What is that? It's, it's the smell of cut red peppers. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Fresh cut red peppers have a lot of pyrazine. And that smell. So that smell, we are exquisitely sensitive to that. Something like a tenth of a nanomolar concentration. Tiny, tiny, minuscule concentration Mm -hmm. for some reason, right? Red bell pepper. Why? And then other smells like ethanol, much, much higher concentration. You need like millimolar concentrations of ethanol to even detect it. But isn't that like with burning wood, for example, like from an evolutionary perspective, I've heard uh, that we are so sensitive to the scent of a burning wood that we wake up very easily. Mm. And that makes sense, right? Because if you woke up, you know, yeah, it's a danger. That's fascinating. Mm. Oh, that's really fascinating. Mm. I love that. But so one of the problems is that not only do these scents vary in terms of the quality of the scent changes with the amount there is, that will be different for every single odorant molecule. So some molecules we're really sensitive to and some we're not. And I don't know that we could predict those without just noticing. Like someone like you comes along and says, well, I've tried 10,000 different molecules and this is what, how people react to them, Wh- which will, of course, also be different by age and different by culture and different in the setting. Like in this room, what's pleasant will be different than what's pleasant right outside this room. That's so true. I mean, it's, it's just a weird sense. I mean, there's this thing of smell. There's certain molecules that in the fragrance world, they're considered almost the disappearing act molecules. Um, violet is one of them. And mm. violet has to be created synthetically, although there is now coming about some natural versions through enflorage. But violet is what's called the disappearing note because it's a fragrance that for some people they can pick it up and for others mm. they can't. Oh. And um, it's a very interesting reaction. 
The other thing that's, there are so many things that are weird about the sense of smell. One other weird thing is that people become habituated to smell. So smells disappear. All smells disappear mm-hmm. in a way. After about, what, 15, 20 minutes, people start to become used to a smell. And then they actually no longer perceive it. Yeah, this the concept of nose blind. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But I mean, imagine, like, look, if I were looking at you and we talked for 20 minutes and then you suddenly vanished. <laughs> you know, that's what's happening with the sense of smell. And then you... I don't think you can can you rejuvenate it can you can you notice it again Yes so again a lot of people have a thought of you smelling coffee beans to be able to kind of wake the senses up or I to be see. able to erase a, um, an odor molecule I I've never believed that I feel like it's too overwhelming so I always talk about the aspect of just inhaling into like cotton inhaling into wool natural fibers my perfume instructor Mandy Aftel was the one who taught me that and I feel that it holds really true that it's just about kind of erasing the odor molecule that have gathered in the nostrils and then starting again. Mm-hmm. But Douglas, what you were saying about violet and mm-hmm. that you can only make it synthetically or you know, mm-hmm. most oh, yeah, of yeah. is there a difference in terms of how the brain processes natural uh, uh, scent versus synthetic? So this is actually a great question for you, Ash, because... Um, that is, I think, a, a big question. There's a lot of debate about it. You know, the thing that's interesting about natural fragrance is that if you take rose, for instance, rose is made up of, you know, I think it's around 80 different molecules, a little over that, that make up what rose is. And synthetically, you can isolate those molecules. And even now, naturally, you're starting to be able to get isolations. Although there's, again, speculation about how natural that isolation becomes. Mm. Regardless, the question is, is can the brain pick up a difference between the two? And, you know, there's some theories that it's like they do the comparison of eating cherry-flavored candy to eating an actual cherry. And, of course, that the benefits of ingesting that are tremendous. Now, the question of whether the brain can actually pick up the difference between a natural fragrance and a non-natural fragrance, I think then it breaks down into the molecular structure of it and how much is actually there and what the brain is picking up. Great example is in England, famous for their beautiful English roses. What people think of with rose when you're in a garden is they're not just smelling what the flower Mm. is exuding, but it's the entire garden. Garden. And that's, I think, another thing with natural versus synthetic, that's such an interesting question mark. Do you have any thoughts on that? So I think two things. One is that the process of extraction of scent is, and I would, you know, you're the expert, but I would think natural extraction of scent is difficult. And you're getting quite a lot of molecules other than the primary olfactorant molecule. So if you do enfleurage of a rose... You're taking a lot of organic compounds out of that molecule. And even in the minutest trace quantities, they're probably going to change the smell profile Mm -hmm. that you're getting. Many of those molecules, if not most, nobody even knows they exist. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's really, who knows what's in there. So I think on that level, you're comparing apples and oranges, really. Mm -hmm. You have one combination of smells from enfleurage and one combination from synthetic rose. It's a different combination of things. The second thing is that for some reason, my, my feeling is that synthetic smells, it has a harsh feeling. I don't know if that's true. Uh, to some degree. I mean, it just depends on the synthetic, you know. There's an additional whole component here to scent that we haven't talked about, and that's the trigeminal nerves. Which is what? It's just the olfactory nerve. It's, the first, it's called the first cranial nerve. You've got 12 large nerves that come out of the brainstem that control most of the sensation in the head. 
So the first nerve is the olfactory nerve. The fifth nerve is the trigeminal nerve, and that's responsible for sensation in the face, but also sensation within the nose. And that comes into play with scent because certain scents, like vinegar, they burn the nose a little bit. I actually burn the nose. Yeah. Well, oh. if you stick your nose into a glass of cognac, and you really, that's why you're not supposed to really sniff cognac. Mm. That's, that, you don't sniff cognac like you sniff wine, because if you do, it just burns. Right. And you can't smell anything. Mm. So that burning sensation is not smell. It's the trigeminal nerve. It's a sensory. It's a sort of a skin sensation. Mm. Oh, but it's part of the component of smell, right? If you, you know, it's part of what we associate with highly alcoholic drinks is a little bit of the burn of mm-hmm. alcohol. Mm. Or you can have scents that are described as a little bit warm or a little bit cold. Mm. Some of that is like this additional nerve, this trigeminal nerve is bringing in That's some sensory amazing. information. It really is that amazing. That blows my mind. In, yeah. in, in the way that like, you think about taste, right? Like taste, some of taste is texture. And that's not actually the parts of the brain that are detecting taste molecules. Mm -hmm. It's, again, that's trigeminal. It's detecting the sensation of Mm -hmm. the food. That's part of the experience of taste. That's so fascinating. So I think, I don't know, I, I would think that there's probably a difference between synthetic and natural sense, maybe even if not in the odorant molecule, but in this trigeminal component. Like how much ether is present, how much Mm -hmm. ethanol is present, Mm -hmm. how much non-scent molecule is present to have extracted that scent. That will make a difference in terms of the feeling of the scent in your nose. That probably makes a difference. And I personally, you know, a lot of people will say, well, you know, you're on on such one side of the fence with this, you know, discussion. And I'm really not, you know, with, I just have chosen to work with naturals Mm -hmm. because I really love the way that they smell. I like the olfactive difference of them. For me, perfume is an art form and there's no right or yeah. wrong way to make art you you know synthetics can be extraordinary and beautiful but i just believe that we're in a time frame where transparency is the most important yeah. and everyone has the right to know what you're putting in your body and what you're putting on your body and i'm also really proud of these materials i mean some of these materials are I mean, tens of thousands of dollars per pound per kilo. And why not celebrate them and to talk about them when we're using them in such high concentrations? Yeah. So on that subject, I'm very excited <laughs> to put the doctor to the test. Ah. Uh-oh. So I have a couple fragrances, which I brought with me today, and I'm not going to describe them. I'm not going to talk about them. And I'm not going to even allow the good doctor and his lovely friend, Sarah, to... See the bottles. Okay. So they are going to be smelling blindly, and I'm going to have them use their vernacular to describe the fragrances and illustrate them for us. So first, first we (laughs) will start. (laughs) I think actually the best way, I really believe, I I hate doing these on blotters. Do you mind if we do, we'll do one of your um, your wrists? I think that skin is always better. Should we reserve wrists? Yes. Okay. Reserve a wrist. I'll reserve my wrists. Yep. Okay, so I just sprayed ash, and now I'm spraying Sara. And do we just let it air dry? So we'll let it dry. So natural fragrance is a little <laughs> bit different than synthetic in that it takes uh, just a couple seconds for it to dry down, very much like wine. Great bottle of red wine, you always want to let it open up and breathe a little bit. Yeah. So we should be good to go. So okay. Isn't it interesting? Because it's so specific. But, but it keeps on developing. Mm-hmm. And maybe it's because we've just spoken about violets, but I have a little violet. What sort of language? Can we use, like, shape? Shape language? Because I would say it's more round. The there's, there's no right or okay. wrong answer here. So roundness? It, it feels very soft to me. Soft? It's kind of, I want to just like roll around in it in a sort of... It's so interesting when you say that one of the things Goose we, feather. Oh, goose feather. Goose That's feather. Really good. Oh, I, yes, feathers make sense. Yeah, I get feathers, clouds, but it's warm. Mm-hmm. 
right? Okay, so there's something really plant-like, like green plants. Is there something orangey in this? Oh, yeah. It's so bizarre. I mean, for, for anyone <laughs> listening to this, you're probably going, okay, what the hell is going on yeah. right now? So there's a lot of very deep inhaling going on, and there's a lot of grappling oh, for words. interesting <laughs> question. Deep in, deep why in. do we deep inhale or shallow inhale? We get different sense when we deep yes. inhale versus mm-hmm. shallow inhale. And again, yes. that has a lot to do with the inside shape of the nose. So inside the nose at the back, you have these things called the conchi. They're, they're, um, they cause turbulence. In the air. So when you inhale in a shallow way, you don't get a lot of turbulence. It just goes straight into your lungs. But if you inhale deeply, you get a tremendous amount of turbulence and it smashes all these molecules against the olfactory. We epithelium. are so cool. Oh, so it's, it's, it's just, just amazing <laughs> how, how you we're extract a lot more scent if you. What you do the deep inhale. Yeah, and yeah. it's not just the volume, it's the turbulence. That's amazing. Mm. You know, the, the other thing that I always find interesting with fragrance is when you see someone. They when they smell when their eyes close, because you realize that they're really having a very personal moment. Any other thoughts on that one? I just I don't know how I, I really feel like this is something I'd like to get better at, like being able because yeah. I think one of the things is that the more think the more language we have to describe our mm-hmm. sensation, the more sensation we have. And that's, Absolutely. Oh, that's again, we haven't talked about point. predictive coding, yeah. right? But one of the main features of the brain, which probably holds up in sense, there is there is there is some really good evidence that it probably holds up in smell, is this idea of predictive coding or top-down coding. And generally, the idea is that you don't see what's actually in the world. You mostly see what you right. expect to see, sort of backed up by what's actually in the world. So, and it's it's the same with smell. Like if you smell a loaf of bread you're going to detect things like the malolactates. You're going to detect odorants associated with bread, even if they're not present, even if they're other things, That's because you're so compelled that this should smell like bread. We're filling in a lot of blanks we right? with our vision blank. as well, right? But, but yeah. What's weird is sensation is much more on the primary side than vision or, you know, like we mm-hmm. said, it's only two synapses to the brain. So the top-down coding for vision is really profound. You really will only see what you're expecting to see. It's why we can do optical illusions so easily. Magic tricks vi- work visually really easily. Mm-hmm. Sensory illusions are, I mean, smell illusions are, can be done, but they're, but they're tricky. Mm-hmm. And they, they go away really easily. So it's harder to fool someone. Oh, I love that. That yeah. analogy of seeing a loaf it's of bread really and the brain the filling in the gaps of mm. like, okay, so this is bread, so it should smell like well, bread. Well, this is why, you know those, those esters that are used for like cherry and banana smells in right. like candies? Mm. If you smell those in isolation, they don't smell anything like cherries or banana, but if someone puts it in a red candy and puts a picture of a cherry yeah. on it, it smells like cherries. That's fascinating. And then you smell an actual cherry and you're like, that doesn't smell anything like the candy. I mean, look, why would you even, you know, but we learn... I remember one was um, my sister when we were little. Do you remember <laughs> in America we had these, this, uh, this cartoon called Strawberry Shortcake? Of course. Okay, Janaki had a Strawberry Shortcake doll, which was scented with strawberry scent. <laughs> right. Which, as it turns out, is exactly the same ester as banana oh. in this particular doll. And if you smelled it and you thought of banana, this. it smelled like bananas. <laughs> and if you smelled it and you thought strawberry shortcake, because that's the car- character's name, it smelled of strawberries. That's incredible. Yeah, it's the same smell. It doesn't, and in fact, in, in real life, it doesn't smell like either of those <laughs> no, fruits. No, it doesn't. It smells like cheap plastic it dolls. It smells like cheap so plastic So what does dolls. this smell like, Douglas? So the fragrance that I sprayed you with is Florgasm. Florgasm is oh, a uh, mm. very spring-type floral. Um, its top notes are bergamot, coriander. The heart of the fragrance is built around orange blossom, mm. uh, linden, 
tuberose, rose, and then of course the pink jasmine that's in there as well. Mm. The base chord on this is ambrette seed. And so the, everything that you talked about I was aspects that I really wanted to bring forward. So it's this roundness, the softness. It's a, de- it's a delicate balance between the provocateur and the, the coquette. So mm. it's definitely, it sits between the two It's worlds. interesting because yeah. we didn't talk about the sexual aspects mm. of the smell. They're really strong though. But it doesn't smell pretty. You know, a lot of round, mm. no. soft scents of fragrances can, can I think of something pretty but very there's sexual. something very sexy mm. about this and it is green and vegetal mm. there's definitely that aspect mm. to it mm. okay so our next one i want to smell like this i know Ooh. i kind of want to rub myself yeah, we both look very happy <laughs> we're like ooh. <laughs> Oh, now this one, you're, you're not spraying this one on well, us. You're dabbing I, this one on us. I actually, I did spray it, but it's such a wide spray pattern. I didn't want to okay. hit everything in the so room. So I want to wait a second. Yeah, just give it a second. Oh, Ooh. wow. Very different. Very, very different. I mean, it's woody. There's something sharp. This one is sharp, not round. Although it's got a round component. Oh. No, there's something very comforting oh, to yeah, it as well. Wave. Yeah, there's like a comforting <laughs> woody thing going on. But there's oh. a smell of wood rot. I almost think of um, like brown alcohol, cedar, like yeah. like wet cedar. Wet cedar. Yeah, wet as cedar. To like dry sort of cedar. Okay. cedar, cedar yeah. that's like been in the rain a lot. That's sort of uh, there's like a mold, like a cedar with a sort of mold quality. Yeah, it's, it has a, a touch of the cedar sauna, actually. Yes. Yeah. Oh, and cinnamon. It is amazing to watch it's you so two. It's so different. It's so different. We to the are other trying one. so I, hard. I'm sure anyone listening to this is like, when are they going to deliberate? Yeah. A very lazy catch-all um, way of describing when we first smelled it, I, I thought masculine, mm-hmm. or you know, th- what the sense I would more traditionally associate with a masculine fragrance. Mm-hmm. That is amazing. But but I would absolutely wear this, and it's kind of it's it's softening as we're mm. as, as yeah, because there's yeah. a sort of there's that always that smell I associated with. I mean, with Chanel Number no. Five, I think it smells like baby powder. Yes, but is it, that because it smells like baby it powder? Smells like baby yeah, powder. yeah. There's like the faintest hint of that. It's so it far from, back. It comes it's from baby comes from skulls. The yeast, yeah. the <laughs> you heard it here first. <laughs> that's right. yeah, yeah. But gosh, that is, that's so different. So the fragrance that you're smelling is Edition 1 um, by Goop, and this is also called Winter. And I worked very closely with Gwyneth on this fragrance. And Gwyneth's, uh, when she described this fragrance, is that she wanted to create this, the sensation of being inside of a cabin in the woods when it was snowing. Oh, and yeah. so there's, she really wanted this concept of the safety of the cabin, mm. of the closeness of the cabin, and being in the cabin with a lover. The idea of the sensuality of that moment, the wood, the fireplace, the kind of the chill from outside. And so you really, you called out many of the notes that are in this. So cassia bark is a very much a featured note in this, but it's buried underneath a lot of several different types of cedars, as well as an oud that's at the base Mm -hmm. that has a kind of a barnyard note that comes through. And then there's aspects of neroli that are laced through this fragrance as well that give it the kind of tingly qualities of it. And there's also ply, which is a type of ginger that on its own, I always say that ply smells like the inside of a brand new refrigerator. It has this kind of like wonderful chill oh, to it mm-hmm. that's hard to create naturally. There's a lot of synthetic notes you can play with to create this, this smell of snow or ice um, without going into the kind of wintergreen mint wow. notes. I love so. this. Gwyneth, you nailed it. <laughs> I'm going to run to Goop and I'm going to buy this. Wow. Goop is my neighbor, actually. I'm going to go there. I'm going to show. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> 
Well, Ash and Sara, thank you so much for this episode. This has been incredible. I really feel like we we went far down the rabbit hole oh. with this. And I really, yeah. Sara, thank you so much for bringing Ash into my life. He's oh. magical. Such a pleasure. Really magical. Oh. And this was a, a really special moment. Ash, if they wanted to find out more about your work, is there someplace that they could? Uh, I've got a website, which is just ashranpura.com. Yeah, and I have yeah. a Twitter feed, which is Aranpura. I sometimes I put stuff. Are there some there. podcasts they could listen to if they're podcasters? Yeah, well, actually, the the so I just done a show for BBC Radio Four on the placebo effect. It is a damn good show. I'm really like I like that show, and oh, I've amazing. got a couple yeah. shows that I do um, with Audible. I'm working on one at the moment on work life balance. There's one there on attention and one on meditation. Ugh. So a couple different. Mm. And Sara, is there a place that they could learn more about your work? Not really. I'm a, I'm a very secretive person. So, yeah, you'll just have to find me. All right. That's fair enough. Well, you can always find us at hereticparfum.com and, of course, the podcast at iTunes or Spotify. Thank you so much. Until next week. <laughs>